Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic, a Go Loud original. The, the one thing, like the very one thing in all our differences in the world, in no matter what colour you are, no matter what sex, sex you are, gender, sexuality, whatever you are, in order to get here, you had to be born. And in order for you to be born, a woman had to do that. Like a woman had to do that. Somebody had to do it. And it was a woman. And, you know, so we've all been born and somebody guided you in. Even if you don't get on with your mother and you never speak to your mother, that's a fact. And I think it's just such an important job and it is an essential job. And hopefully that's a way to connect in with the issue. And also the fact that it's not just, and I think as well, people have flipped it off saying it's a woman's issue as well. It's a family issue because it's the fathers, it's the parents, it's the, you know, whether whether you're a father, whether you're a, you know, a, a mother um, waiting outside in, in your car, you know, it's the partners that are left in, that are left outside. So it's a family issue. It's not just just uh, it's it's not it's it's not just about women. And, you know, and I think as well how we treat those women in those hospitals at the most vulnerable time in their lives is, is a real representation of who we are as a people. And I think it's really important to sort of remember that. Hi, folks, and welcome to Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic, a Go Loud original series. I'm Alison Curtis, and I'm joined by series producer D. Reddy. Thanks, Alison. We'll explain that in a minute. But just to say, it's the podcast inspired by an Instagram post, which asked whether anyone out there would tell the real stories of those who had been affected by the COVID-19 restrictions in maternity hospitals. Which we have been doing over the past three weeks. And so far, we've heard incredibly brave stories from Emma, from Moira, and from James. And today, we'll be hearing from the woman who put it out, the original call to action on Instagram that inspired us to make this series, Amy De Bruin. What an amazing woman. So we normally have a lineup that includes Suzanne Kane and Sue Murphy. And for various reasons, and uh, neither Suzanne or Sue could join today. So I said I would hop on mic um, and uh, give you a hand, Alison. Absolutely. And we were just speaking a moment ago. Sue is in the middle of uh, her second pregnancy, very close to having the baby. And she's uh, left us a voice note about what it's like to be in maternity care right now. And uh, I just, you and I, Dee, were saying we cannot get over how calm she is because not only was she faced with, you know, um, a pregnancy that, you know, has gestational diabetes involved in it, but she and her partner uh, recently, well, she's thankfully fine, but her partner has COVID. And that's just the last thing want at this stage of her pregnancy. Absolutely, because it's coming so close to her due date now. And she's, you know, like, you know, across this series, even after she started maternity leave, she was the one really driving this. Like she's she's been a powerhouse in terms of getting this made. So um we're we're all thinking of you, Sue, and uh, I'm sure the listeners uh, would love to hear from her. So she's very kindly sent us on a voice note um, just so that people can hear that how she's getting on. Hi, everyone. Um, just my update this week from uh, confinement. Um, so this is, I am 38 weeks pregnant today and my husband uh, tested positive for uh, COVID on Sunday. Um, so he is currently in isolation in the front of the house and working from the front of the house and myself and my daughter are at the back of the house. 
because of uh, the isolation, we haven't been allowed to let anyone in the house. And so I'm now uh, looking after a 21-year-old uh, by myself at 38 weeks pregnant, which hasn't been easy. Um, it's been a very uh, confusing week, to be honest. Now, the Rotunda have been really supportive. Um, I've been on to the COVID helpline. Um, there's a fantastic fantastic midwife uh, called Yvonne who's practically my best friend now and she's been guiding me through it so I've, I've had a negative test myself that came back on uh, Monday morning but I have to go through their system which is an internal system of test their own internal system of testing um, and I should find out about that today and um, I also can't go to my diabetic clinic now I have to go through um, an other area of the hospital called the red zone which is basically where you go if you're um, uh, I presume cl close contacts or, or COVID um, positive so here's hoping I, my, I've had two negative COVID tests now one on the 21st of September and one yesterday so I'm really hoping that this third one is going to be negative as well because obviously there's all sorts of implications for our baby if there is COVID um, I'm due to have my C-section on the Tuesday uh, it looks like at the moment that that might not be a possibility for a couple of reasons. They're depending on the outcome of the test, but also because um, my husband is positive. He has to isolate um, under HSE guidelines until Friday. So he's fine until Friday. Uh, he can come out into the rest of the house, but under Rotunda guidelines is not allowed to go into the hospital to the 20th they say 10 days from the test so he's um unfortunately has to wait until that so they're trying to push out my c-section now for a couple of days um obviously they're concerned because i'm diabetic so at 39 weeks ideally i was having that and it was just to prevent the baby from getting too big they were concerned that his tummy was a little bit big um which is kind of normal enough as far as I know under uh, diabetic stuff. So um, in contact with the HSC, I have been told that I have an underlying condition because of the diabetes and that I am high risk. Uh, so I am restricting my movements at the moment. The only place I've been is the hospital. Like I've done a nice uh, tour of the test centres of North Dublin and um, the Rotunda. So I'm not actually outside of the house at all. Um, but it's just a waiting game now really to find out what story is with this test today um the hse have told me that i need to isolate until the until his date as well so that's the 20th which is fine they originally had told us the 24th but that was because of continuing exposure around the house he's actually isolated so he's not with myself or my daughter and my daughter has tested negative twice now as well for COVID. Um, my mother-in-law tested negative and my mother has tested negative. So, um, yeah, it's just, it, it's uh, been a very stressful time because we've been getting a lot of information from a lot of different areas. We've had different contact tracers talking to different people in the house. There's the added complication of 38 weeks pregnant and the diabetes. Um, and it what I find a little bit stressful about the whole thing is that the HSE guidelines haven't been very clear they once told me 17 days, they told me 14 days, they told me 10 days, they told me I needed another test, they told me I didn't need another test, they told me I could go about my movements as normal. So it it's, it is in terms of somebody who's like already dealing with the stress of being at 38 weeks pregnant, they probably need to tighten up those uh, 
communication guidelines a little bit. Um, I can't tell you the amount of contact traces I've talked to now at this stage who have been saying to me, oh, I need to check that out. I'm not quite sure what the story is with that. So um, thankfully, the return to have, even though it's a different set of guidelines, which is not great, obviously, at least um, the guidelines are clear from them what they what they say they're going to do. So, I mean, I have fallen to the return down on many an occasion in the past in terms of partner restrictions, but um, it's been working out okay. So, um, I hope by the next time I update you guys, I will have a baby um, and that all of this will be over. Um, but we'll see how it goes. Um, good to talk to you all. Take care. Bye-bye. So Sue has been a powerhouse, as Dee mentioned before, in getting this made. And I'm so glad she was able to let us know how she's getting on, because I'm sure many of you have been following her story along with this podcast. And your Birthing a Nation team are all sending you the best wishes at the moment. Yeah, the, the Birthing a Nation uh, WhatsApp has been very, very busy of late. And then poor Suzanne, of course, her little daughter, Sadie, uh, isn't well today. So she she had to go and pick her up from crash, which is why I'm here. But as you mentioned uh, earlier, Alison, our guest today is the incredible Amy DeVroon. She's been an unbelievable voice um, in terms of shining a light on what women and families are going through at the moment. And I think a lot of people listening today will have heard her impassioned speech at the March for Maternity last week. And it was one, I mean, I know, you know and, and we can talk about it in a minute, you know, I'm not expecting, nor am I, as far as I'm aware, at any risk of expecting anytime soon. But the way Amy spoke, I think it just resonated with people across the country. And I really hope that it does something in terms of actually getting people who aren't in the thick of this at the moment to get on board as allies, as we know Irish people can be. She was incredible. And uh, everyone who was taking part in the uh, March for Maternity were amazing. And Linda Kelly is going to be joining us in a few moments on this podcast. Obviously, we'll have more to tell us on that. Um, But I have to say, I listened to Amy's story uh, before we came to record this podcast. And it really brought back flashbacks of when I was in the Rotunda with Joan in 2011. And myself, like Amy, had uh, emergency C-section. And afterwards, you are very weak, and you're very tired, and you're really kind of overwhelmed by everything and physically you're not very great and my situation was both my arms because I had pre and then developed post eclampsia and I was in high dependency were tied up with IVs and I just remember this one moment it was probably Joan's second night or third night and she was crying but the way they placed her she was just up at my shoulder and Amy describes the same moment as well and that you can't reach you physically can't reach for the baby because you're tied up in all these wires and you know ivs and a a nurse a midwife sorry had to come in and move joan to me but literally if they just it's just a little things like and if your partner was there they could pass you the baby but if they just moved her down even a foot i would have been able to get her if she was at my waist and just when amy was speaking that moment really resonated with me and we were lucky enough to chat to her a week before she went in for her c-section again this coming week and she's here to tell us more about her story now on the podcast Hi, my name is Amy DeVroon. Uh, I'm an Irish actor and writer and I have a, a just over two-year-old uh, little girl called Billy. Uh, he was born in 2019 and I'm just about to give birth again in about three and a half days. <laughs> so uh, yeah, my experience, I guess it's probably best to start with my experience with Billy, um, who was born sort of pre-pandemic uh, in the Coombe Hospital in on the 5th of July uh, 2019. Um, she, uh, I was 
I was induced. So she was she was measuring a bit small and, and things like that. So they just kind of said, oh, best to induce. That was fine. I went in for an induction in the morning. By that evening, I was actually ready to have my waters broken, uh, but there was no beds available. So I ended up having to stay overnight in the coom. My husband then had to leave at that point and just kind of wait in the car. But he was coming straight back in at 6 a.m., you know, um, so so that was kind of manageable. I was in a bit of pain because obviously there's kind of cramping involved and things like that when you're induced. But that was all fine. And then the next day went down, uh, my waters were broken and I was just having a very standard delivery moving along kind of an, at, a, at, a, at a kind of average pace. And I do remember at one particular point, you know, at about probably four or five centimetres when I felt things had kind of stepped up a notch when you're when you're dilating, feeling very woozy. And I kept sleeping and passing out now looking back on it. I was just kind of passing out constantly. And the nurses at the time were kind of going, oh, you're getting a bit warm. So we're just going to try and cool you down. And my obstetrician kind of came up and checked on me. And, and then there was a bit of a panic, but it was all dealt with very well. So my husband was there beside me the entire time talking to me, you know, going through everything with me. And so I felt very calm. I felt very safe. I felt very supported because he was there, essentially. And I felt like there was a, a voice there for me if I had any concerns. There was even just little things like uh, they were they were changing me into scrubs because they realized you're going to have to have an emergency C-section. Your uh, temperature's gone through the roof and your baby's heartbeat has gone off the ch- off the charts. And when I was shown this chart afterwards, he, my obstetrician was like, that's literally what we mean. It went off the charts. So he said, usually they thought they had, that I had sepsis. So I was given um, I was given antibiotics and then explained that my baby would have to have antibiotics as soon as she arrived. And again, that was kind of all fine. I kind of was just accepting of, of what was happening because I had my support system there with me the whole time. And everyone was, you know, the doctors and, and nurses and everyone dealt with it very well. It was a very kind of calm atmosphere. But obviously it was my first time around and I knew no different. So I was brought down for an emergency cesarean and Sean arrived into the room with me. And then we saw Billy and and straight after we, you know, when I'm sewn up and I'm sort of brought back to recovery at this point, I had arrived into the Coombe Hospital, I think it was something like the Wednesday morning at 6am. Billy was born on the Friday morning, a little after midnight. So if you think of that whole time, you've been labouring in whatever way labouring means to you, but you have been, you've been on your journey to have your baby. So that evening um, or, or that night then, I was kind of, I was brought down to recovery and Sean was there. And I was holding Billy and I was, there's videos of me. I'm just kind of passing out of pure tiredness. I'd lost a lot of blood. I didn't need a transfusion. But when we went back, the doctor had said, you were just below needing a transfusion. So that's kind of how lightheaded and out of it you are. So, yeah. So, and then I I sort of gave her a feed and in the, and then I was brought to my room. I had a lovely private room. So everything was, you know, very civilized and lovely. And uh, and the nurse actually said to me, you'll have to feed her again at half past five. And at this point, I know that Sean's not going to be there because he has to leave. So I'm going, how do I? Oh, God, how do I? OK, um, how do I feed her? Because um, I've never I've never done this before. And do I set an alarm or do I, you know, like like I didn't know, does someone come to you or what happens? So weirdly, and it must be a mother instinct thing, I literally woke up at half past five. I do not know how after an emergency cesarean, I reached across, I picked her up out of the cot and I just started 
for want of a better word, waving my boob in her face <laughs> and sort of going like, oh, like, here you go. I don't really. And um, and then she, she then the nurse came in and she actually said, oh, Billy actually seems like she has very low blood sugar. She's a little bit floppy. We're just going to send her upstairs. She was taken off from 5 a.m., about half 5 a.m. till about midday the next day when my mum came in, my husband was in and I was going, can I see her now? I just want to get my mum to see her. I just want to, can I see her? And they had said to me, if we need to bottle feed her cameo, I was like, give her whatever she needs, just make sure she's looked after. And again, completely out of it. But I, again, I had my husband and my mother there for the support to go, you know, let's push to get to see her now and let's get her down and let's get her down. She had everything. So I had all that. And then, and then from then on, it was just recovery. Little things like not getting enough pain relief because they are super busy in there. Um, you have to really fight for that, um, and 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 have someone to advocate for you when you're kind of going. Am I just being a bit dramatic here, or do I need you know? It's your husband or or your mother or your partner, whoever is going to say, you know, she needs some pain relief. Can we get it to her or whatever? Um, and little things just like picking up the baby, helping you feed, helping you, you know, go to the toilet, all of these little things. Or the first time you, you like, even if to go to the toilet um, after you've had your baby, you're kind of going, do I leave the baby in the in the room there on their own? Who do I leave the baby? Because now the baby only has me and I'm, you know, so there's all these panic stations. So, um, yeah. And then from there on, it was just recovery. And I was really, I'm, I'm definitely one of the lucky ones. I recovered really well I could walk really well afterwards there was no big drama in that department so then when I uh, got pregnant uh, this time around for a second (laughs) I was very aware that it was going to be different because of the pandemic but in sort of a naivety I kind of thought well do you know what we'll get through half the pregnancy because I'm not I don't enjoy being pregnant very much so I go we'll get through half the pregnancy and it'd be locked down and all that and that'll have passed the sick bit and then sure by by the summertime everything will be opened up and you know we'll all have our vaccines and we'll all be at the hospitals and it's just been night and day uh, experience with Billy to the experience with, with with this baby Sean was at the 20 week scan which was great that he was able to do that thank God and uh, but like he was at every single scan with Billy he was part of it you know the whole shebang and um, yeah so I think this time round going in now thank like luckily the restrictions have opened up a little bit and he'll be in for visitors hour, visitor hours in the coom when I have the baby but just knowing this time what's ahead, I'm not sure which is better or which is worse. <laughs> like knowing, having knowledge of the experience beforehand, knowing kind of what I had before versus what I'm going to have now is completely different because he'll leave it. Like if if visiting hours are till half eight, he will leave at half eight and he will not come back until half nine the next morning. That's 13 hours on your own. So you're going to have to fight to, you know, um, get help if you need it. Um, you're going to have to really advocate for yourself. And it's very lonely. And then on top of that, when I had Billy, like I had my sisters in, my sister-in-law in, my parents-in-law, my parents, you know, like there's so much joy and excitement surrounding it. And they're coming in to see the new baby. And that's kind of what keeps you going in a hospital is your visitors. And this time around, there'll be none of that. So I'm kind of going like you know, I was saying to my doctor, if I need to get, if I want to be uh, discharged early, 
earlier than the recommended five days or four to five days or three to five days. Can I? And he's going, well, that's, you, you know, that's your choice if you need to be, you know. And ideally, I have a two year old at home. So ideally, in a perfect world, I'd be able to go into the hospital and she'd be able to come in and see her new sibling. I'd have all these visitors and I'd probably stay the five days because I'd go once I go home it's straight into work. Like I've got, a, I've got a baby, I've got a, a toddler there and a baby and both will be needing me, you know? So it's been very, very different the second time around. The The pandemic has 100% affected my decision in having the C-section. Like obviously there's other elements that go along with it. So I, you know, I kind of thought to myself, well, maybe that's how my body reacts to labor, you know? So what's, what's, what's the chances that it could happen again? I could labor very well up until a point and then suddenly it all, you know, all kind of reels right the window. But a huge part of my decision is that I know if I'm having a C-section, I know the day I'm going in, I know that my husband will be there and I know that, you know, he'll be uh, able to support me in, in that way. So Like, that's not ideal either, because each birth is different, each child is different, each experience is different. And you don't just want to sort of tar each pregnancy with the kind of same brush or, you know. But yeah, it was definitely a huge, a huge factor in the decision making. And I was kind of, when all the restrictions were still in place, I was kind of quite happy with myself going, well, now at least, at least I know Sean will be there. You know, at least I know I won't be sort of, um, you know, struggling to get to three centimetres and then have to wait for him to come in and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So definitely was a huge factor. So in terms of uh, anything that would have affected me during my kind of scans or needing the support there where Sean wasn't able to be there, you know, very early on in the pregnancy around the seven week mark, I had a little bleed. And uh, so I had to go in for that scan on my own. And I've had, you know, I've had families that have, families, I've had family that have, you know, miscarried early and, um, and, and lost children, uh, lost babies later and all of those kind of things. So there's been that kind of experience. So I very much built myself up for that going okay, well, whatever's meant to be is meant to be. And, you know, I kind of had built myself up for both scenarios for sure. So, yeah, and it kind of just would have been great to have him there for that scan. He was he was sitting outside, so I knew he was outside. But like, that must be awful from his point of view to have to sit there because he has no control over it and he's just waiting you know, for a text or for a little video or and every scan that you go to definitely. And I do know this from the first time around. Every scan that you go to creates connection with your child like it really does, because I'm such a I'm such a little worker bee. I, you know, like, as I say, I'm not a great pregnant person. I whinge a lot about it, you know, but I but what but what what always brings me back is kind of the the scans and seeing the little heartbeat and seeing their little hands and feet and all that. And I just think it's really hard then for the partners to not experience that. And I've had friends who's it's their first time round and they're not getting in with their partner and they're not getting to experience that. And I know even like a huge thing as a first time parent and and not carrying the child, you know, say with my husband, 
there's always that kind of thing of, you know, it takes a little bit longer for it to land with them because they're not carrying the child. So, you know, and, and, you know, and their way of nesting is different to your way of nesting and all that kind of stuff. So it hasn't made sense to me that they're not allowed in in the scans because you're, you know, especially at this point, I'm talking about this point when everything else is, you know, completely opening up. Like they're the person that's going to be they're with you all the time. So if 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 you have COVID, they have COVID, surely, you know, it's all that kind of stuff. So it's, you know, um, yeah. And then I suppose on top of that, and that is me probably going on a tangent. I think that's why people were just so disgusted with the with the with the documentary, with the Rotunda documentary, because you're kind of going like I've heard of people who were in those hospitals and ended up giving birth and their partner just didn't get in on time. And that is just and when you've a camera crew filming you while you're doing that, you're kind of going, hang on a second, where does this where does this align where, you know, what is the what is the intention here? Because like, I think we've all been really good over the last couple of years. And we've all said like it's for the greater good and 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 people are getting pregnant and having babies knowing that, you know, there is that possibility. But it's because we're all trying to look out for each other and we're prepared to make a sacrifice of having a support partner there. But then when the rules start getting a little bit fudgy, it just kind of nothing starts, you know, you kind of kind of go, hang on, is there an is there an ulterior motive here? Like what does you know, what's actually going on, you know, underneath it all? I definitely don't like to publicly put my name to anything, particularly as an actor. Um, because I think sometimes the lines can get a little bit kind of uh, blurry and it can just be a bit, uh, you know, you, you don't want to kind of align yourself too closely to things, you know. I And, I, and also, just on a completely di- separate note, apart from my job, is that I kind of like to keep an open mind. So I like to kind of understand all points of view and I, I think kind of nowadays we're very reactive, you know, like everything is just like you're either... You either think this way or you think that way. And there is no in between. And I think there's always room for questions. Like, I just think there's always room to open up for questions. Um, And that's how we create better understanding. And, you know, but what was happening, the reason I kind of made the video back in July, I was just starting to get like increasingly irritated by the fact that nothing was making sense and and I was asking the question, actually, I think that was where it was really coming from. I was asking the question of like, why, why are these restrictions still in place? Um, hello. And you're sort of like talking out into the ether and no one's answering you. Like no one can answer. And you're saying, well, where does the, where does the book stop? Okay. Where does the book stop? Oh, it's the minister for health. Is it? Oh no, he has no control. Does he not? Okay. So what about the masters of the hospital? Oh, oh, they're just not doing it. Okay. So like, and you were just turning around and you were just being sort of passed along. And it just was very reminiscent of any of the kind of campaigns for women in this country that just seemed to take so long, you know, like repeal and all of that kind of stuff. And and then um, I think a huge thing as well was the irony for me of the mother and baby homes and how women had been treated in this country like right up until like until I was a kid you know uh and I was kind of thinking are do we just not do are we just living in a country where women are treated appallingly and we've just accepted it for all this time you know 
I think that was kind of where the video ended up coming from. It was all this kind of mix of feelings and kind of going, oh, no, we can't be that much of a cliche. Oh, are we really? Oh, God, no, please. <laughs> like, I feel like we were all a bit more evolved than this. No, you know, so, um, yeah, I think that's definitely where the, like, why it just kind of bubbled out of me. And and as well, I think I put up the video online with, with like wanting to be wrong. Like I wanted someone to turn around and say, no, Amy, now you've got it confused because you weren't listening properly. Like the reason we're doing it is because of A, B and C, but nothing was kind of, nothing was coming together and nothing was, yeah, nothing felt, like nothing felt um, genuine. Like it felt like, this was really handy for people to just have partners excluded and have women on their own. And it just felt really convenient. And and that's kind of then what I, the more kind of I learned like about it all, I was going, oh my God, like, are we not mortified? So that was Amy there in the conversation that you mentioned, Alison, earlier, where she chatted to us just a couple of days before she was actually due to go in for the C-section. Now that, amazing speech that we talked about earlier that she gave at the March for Maternity was only two weeks after she actually had Baby River. And she's an incredible woman. She has also found time for Ireland AM this week. And then again, she was kind enough to catch up with us again this morning, just to let us know how that C-section went and and talk a little bit actually about those things that you mentioned, Alison, of how does one actually cope when they're recovering from a serious surgery alone in a in a room in a hospital so here's what she had to say on that yeah my experience this time around obviously giving birth was very different to last time around you know because it was a planned c-section obviously it was it, it was actually far more medical than I think I'd really allowed myself to to land with me in terms of birth because it was a c-section I knew what time it was so my husband could come in with me and he was there for the birth there was no questions about that so that was great in terms of visiting hours um I found the recovery and I found the few days in hospital afterwards tough and I will say one it's because no other visitors are allowed in so you don't get that buzz obviously but that's completely understandable but two um even though I was in a hospital that had opened up its visiting hours so technically I would be deemed as lucky um they're 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 blocked off into sections of the day I'm not going to be exact on this but it's something like you know half 9 till 12 and then 2 to 4 and then 6 to 8, something like that. And that can be impossible when you've just had a C-section. The other thing as well as I was in a private room, I was lucky enough to be in a private room. So, but you would have a security guy knocking on your door saying, time to go now, time to go. And a few of the times, most of the times, I would just go, I'm sorry, I need to go to the toilet. I'm sorry, I can't actually lift the baby. So my husband will stay with me until I tell him to leave. Like, you know, or I would just ignore the guy, go, thank you very much. And then I would just say to Sean, you're staying there because I actually need to go to the toilet. I need you to hold the baby. I need to like, you know, your recovery is a lot different when you've had a C-section. And also in terms of how understaffed the hospitals are, the first couple of nights after my C-section, so I'd had major surgery, you know, I wasn't really able to lift the baby. And then you're sort of at the mercy of kind of ringing a bell, getting someone when the baby's crying to come in, lift the baby for you and all that. So I would generally then have to do that myself because I just couldn't, you know, I just would I'd be going, if baby's crying, I'm just going to try and pick up the baby. 
that's what's difficult as well because your support partner isn't there for that. So I would always try to encourage him to stay a little bit longer um, in our private room because it was a private room. So there was nobody else in there. Surely that's not breaking any rules and, and, and encourage him to stay a little bit longer. Help me with the last feed so that then the nights weren't so long because also he's not coming in until nine in the morning, half nine in the morning. That's a huge amount of time. And my uh, my trusty nurse, Una, who I, I was speaking about in the last one who saved my life on Billy, who, who was there in the night times. She actually happened to just be there one of the nights I was there and took the baby for me. And uh, which I heard they used to do back in the uh, back, back, back in the day. So what I kind of realized was from that was there's two things at play in this from my personal experience observing it. One is the maternity restrictions. So you don't have your support partner there. But the other one is there's cracks in the system that have been there obviously a long time and they're coming to light now that we don't have our support partners there to either advocate for us or do a few of, of of the necessary jobs when we're in hospital. And just also to say that the staff are amazing, like they're brilliant, but they are working under the huge pressure and constraints that they have and you know and and there's you know uh, one nurse running around you know all night trying to help everybody so it's not ideal from their point of view either so there's no blame there from my point of view I'm just sort of observing that there is cracks in the system that have clearly been there a long time and that are only really showing themselves now that we don't have anybody there to support us you know through that journey so a week ago um which was two weeks after I had given birth, almost to the day I I was outside the doll and uh, gave a speech for the for March for maternity. Again, was very nervous about that because I think as well where I would fall down is as I say I'm not a politician, I'm not particularly politically minded, so it was quite daunting. But what what Linda from Women Ascend had actually said to me, she said, "You can't get." your experience wrong you cannot get your experience wrong so I came to it from the speech from that point of view and I came to it from a place of of I, I suppose from my own point of view just reason and basic basic humanity and basic kindness and and I thought to myself how with so many other issues myself that I can shy away or turn a blind eye to them because I think well I'm not going through that just yet I, I don't really have the capacity to take that on right now so I tried to open up that conversation and, 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 and I guess create, create a space where maybe people could understand it. And I suppose that's where a lot of where, where that kind of clip has been taken out, where I'm saying, you know, in order to get here, a woman gave birth to you. And it is an important job and it's an essential job because we're hearing all about these essential jobs and essential workers. And, you know, surely uh, we should be given some sort of, you know, dignity and respect um, to have the support that we need to to go through that, especially when the rest of the world is opening up. Like I'm not talking about at the height of COVID, like I'm talking about now when people are vaccinated. Yeah. And and it was very funny. I think my voice went up an octave like I was I was, I was speaking from up here the whole time <laughs> because it was very emotional and it was very emotional just after you've had your life changing experience of having, you know, your second baby and bringing, you know, the dynamics of after C-section getting into town and bringing your baby and then having your other child looked after and getting your husband to come with you and all this. You know, seeing, looking around and seeing all these women who had done the same thing and were supporting each other, it was really powerful and uh and yeah and I was and I felt and, and what's so funny is a lot of people are contacting me going thanks for speaking up for us and then I felt like afterwards which I didn't realize at the time yeah maybe that was where 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 my little role came in for that I was speaking for the women the ordinary everyday women like myself 
are not politicians, don't know how to kind of get all the facts and figures in order in the same way somebody who's very politically minded could, but is very much able to speak on their experience. And uh, yeah, and it was great. And I suppose just from being um, from from my background in being an actor, it's standing up in front of people is not something that I find difficult. So it was it was a very easy thing from that point of view to do. So I felt very privileged that I could use a skill that I had, which was standing in front of people um, and speaking. Uh, I, I felt very privileged that I was I was able to do it and somebody had asked me to do it. It's hard to know what about this particular campaign has made me speak up because obviously, as I keep saying, keep banging on about it, I don't like to as, as an actor, I like to keep those two kind of things separate. And But I think with this campaign, I guess what kind of is in my brain is that kind of I do have a daughter. And I think of where Ireland was when I was growing up and I thought we were so kind of progressive and we, we, were, we were so forward thinking. But when I think about myself at school, you know, which doesn't feel like that long ago and sort of um, and the shame around, you know, sexuality or sex or abortion or all of these things that have now, you know, moved forward so quickly in time. I would hate to think that 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 my daughter is in a position where you know, the maternity services, this has just become the status quo where women are sort of unsupported and we just sort of let this one slide because it was kind of too difficult. We'd fought for we'd fought for marriage equality. We'd fought for repeal. Let's just let's just let that one go or or whatever. So I think that was it. And I felt like and I also feel there's a a bit as well. And and I would have had it myself a bit of a um, I, I it's something that I would have thought of myself, maybe a bit of a bias against against mothers in a way because I was always kind of very much like myself you know well when I if if I ever have children I didn't even know if I wanted them at, at one point in my life I was kind of going well if I ever have children like I'll still work and I'll still be who I am and I won't lose my identity and there's all this kind of pressure pressure on 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 women and uh, and a kind of a I, I sometimes a, a looking down on on mothers as if it's kind of this you know, non-job or, or non-thing. And 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 that's why I, I, I kind of felt like, well, if no one's kind of speaking up and saying, hang on a second, you know, we're, we're all here. We do exist and we do deserve the same rights as everybody else. That, that yeah, maybe if it, maybe it was time for, for me to actually just kind of lose my internal hang up about that, about being a working mother and being able to go, no, actually, like, God, this is actually what I do. And actually, sorry, it's really important. And, you know, and I didn't realize until I had children how important that job is, you know, you're, you, you are birthing and you are ra- raising the next generation to hopefully be really sound humans. So yeah, I felt like it was kind of time to, to, yeah, let my voice be heard. I definitely uh, said it in my speech about kind of encouraging a uh, hope that uh, where I hoped people would get encouraged to become allies when I was saying that, you know, the the one thing, like the very one thing in all our differences in the world in no matter what, color you are no matter what sex sex you are gender sexuality whatever you are in order to get here you had to be born and in order for you to be born a woman had to do that like a woman had to do that somebody had to do it and it was a woman and you know so we've all been born and somebody guided you in even if you don't get on with your mother and you never speak to your mother that's a fact and i think it's just such an important job and it is an essential job and hopefully that's a way to connect in with the issue and also the fact that it's not just and I think as well people have flipped it off saying it's a woman's issue as well 
it's a family issue because it's the fathers, it's the parents, it's the, you know, whether whether you're a father, whether you're a, you know, a, a mother um, waiting outside in, in your car, you know, it's the partners that are left, in, that are left outside. So it's a family issue. It's not just, just, uh, it's, it's not, it's, it's not just about women. And, you know, and I think as well, how we treat those women in those hospitals at the most vulnerable time in their lives is is a real representation of who we are as a people. And I think it's really important to sort of remember that. So in terms of getting people to be allies, like what I would say is like, I know it's not glamorous, like the whole idea of motherhood is not the most glamorous kind of, um, you know, topic or like cause to like join. But I will say you have a mother no matter where she is, whether she's dead or alive, whether you don't speak to her or whatever, that did birth you to get here. And, you know, and 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 we need the the support of the people behind it because that's the real thing that I'm noticing. There is no there there's no push from people who aren't in the situation. And I know myself I wouldn't have bothered. I wouldn't have bothered, but yeah, I think it's to have a push from the people that that aren't in the situation. And I think it is like it's probably not very cool and it's probably not very glamorous. Like, do you know what I mean? Like there's other issues that are kind of like, you know, bodily autonomy is cool. Like, you know what I mean? It's a, it's a cool issue to get behind and, 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 and you can relate it to yourself. But I think if you can find that way to relate it to yourself, maybe you can, you can connect in with it. And I think to become an ally is, is one of the most powerful things that you can do at the moment. I think even just sharing it, using your voice, joining any of the marches, I think just in a, in any way to kind of get behind the issue is is really useful and just get informed. And there's people like, you know, Linda from Women Ascend or um, Emma from In Our Shoes, you know, COVID pregnancy, who have the knowledge that they can literally just give you. So they would even be, and they're so open with it. You can ask them questions anytime, you know. And you just heard Amy DeBruyne there. What an incredible, incredible woman. And God, she really is seriously impressive. And as always in Birthing a Nation, Linda Kelly from Women Ascend joins us. And also speaking of a powerhouse and a woman who has been very busy in the last week. Linda, how are you? I'm good, Alison. Still trying to process everything that happened last week at the March for Maternity. Uh, they're my phone. I have never received so many messages in my entire life. Um, I am so I'm still trying to get back to all of the messages for pe- from people. And it was Amy's speech. It was Rob's speech. It was Sarah's speech. But I think one of the things I've really noticed since the March is that women who have been through a pandemic pregnancy who maybe thought they got away lightly who thought maybe, you know, I, I didn't have a very difficult birth or I didn't have kind of a very traumatic experience are contacting it and they're saying, you know, I had my head down. I tried to get through it as best I could. But hearing the speeches and seeing everybody come together in Dublin, it was like it opened the floodgates for them. And suddenly all of this grief that they had been bottling up about their pandemic pregnancy experience came flowing out and I think that's what resonated so much around Amy's speech around the clip that was so widely shared is that giving birth is a transformative life event for the woman and for the family and you know the fact that it's been so disregarded by decision makers and we haven't been able to prioritize it is I think now where people's anger is really coming to the fore. 
Linda, do you feel that, you know, I've witnessed it with the coverage of the march, but I feel like, and we now feel it with this podcast in particular as well, like the bubbling has, it's broken the surface and it's, it's on people's agendas now. And like, do you, if you had a crystal ball, can you forecast what the next few weeks might be like? There's the optimistic part of me, Alison, that would love to say to you, yes, you know, Stephen Donnelly's office, who were in contact on Monday, that they're going to get back in touch and we're going to get in a room and we're going to sort this out and we're going to have a roadmap. I would love to be able to say that to you and to everybody listening with confidence. But I can't because it is just the case, you know, the HSE invited us back into a meeting at the end of October and we went back to them and said, listen, that's all well and good, but like that's five weeks after we last met. Can we not progress things a little bit faster? Because there are hundreds of people going through maternity services um, and giving birth every day. And the answer is no. You know, the, you'll, you'll be lucky to get that meeting on the 29th of October or whatever it is. And it's that it's just that refusal to really look at this issue. Like we know that there is a balancing act here. We know that the profile of COVID in unvaccinated pregnant women is scary. It is very, very scary. And people are very, very ill. Nobody wants to, you know, nobody wants to take away from the seriousness of that situation. But it is a small cohort and growing smaller every day. And we have to also look at and balance the mental health impact of the restrictions on the larger population of vaccinated and unvaccinated pregnant women. And no, I was going to say, and D, what, you know, Linda, obviously there was huge crowds there and it was all, you know, it got a lot of coverage. But what do you think about like women who aren't, you know, currently pregnant, aren't planning on becoming pregnant? What do you think about allyship in this situation? Yeah, it's a fun one, Alison. It's one that I've been thinking about a lot over the course of this series because the type of person that you've just described is very much me. And I just feel, I feel a bit angry for my Irish sister's um, and in some cases, brothers, you know, who are who are going through this. I think, you know, during the repeal the eighth referendum, during the marriage equality referendum, one thing that we proved as a nation, I believe, is that Irish people make bloody good allies when they get behind a cause. And what is it about this particular cause that people aren't jumping on board with? Because I really believe that they should. And, you know, she kind of said it, maybe it's not cool enough. You know, the two that we've referenced were more, they were cooler, you know, um, and she and, and Amy herself, she was like, you know, there's something about motherhood that just isn't trendy or whatever. But for me, that, that's, that's not enough of an excuse. And as I've seen over the course of this series, and you guys have all been amazing, you know, Sue going through so much, Suzanne having to rush off to collect Sadie today. The, the people who are most need in this situation are in the least position to be able to put up a fight. And I believe that the rest of us, therefore, need to stand for them and stand with them and show that we believe that this is a, 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 a scenario that affects everybody in the country because it's just not good enough. 
Dee, that's so well put. Like that actually is such a good way of putting it. And it's like, yes, like Sue is literally got her due date um, for her section. All these other, you know, women who are trying to, you know, progress this issue as well are, as you say, like in a physically vulnerable state as it is. And it is up to like people like myself who, you know, I'm not in that state or people who are before that, you know, stage of their lives to really get out there and, and pound the pavement. Exactly. And you know, Alison, it's one thing that that Amy said in her speech, and she reiterated it earlier this morning, was that everybody has a mother. And, you know, both of those big um, referendi and those political movements that we referenced, they were both won on the basis of, even if you weren't in that scenario, of of, of kind of... uh, leaning on people's empathy and the fact that everybody knew somebody in their life who was LGBTQ, everybody that knew somebody in their life who may or have needed to, to, to avail of an abortion, everybody has a mother or knows a mother or has a brother who's been denied access to a delivery room. There's not one person in this country or in any country that can say that they don't know someone that's affected by this. And I think part of the problem is that birth bubble that you guys talked about in previous episodes that, you know, people as a coping mechanism have kind of gone into this state of not talking about it. But do you know what? The rest of us need to talk about it for these people and the rest of us need to now kick up, kick up a fuss and make a storm and be allies because we know Irish people can be. No, Irish people have, and this is something I would say definitely as someone who wasn't, you know, originally from here and, you know, as a citizen of another country, Irish people have a care for one another and a community and a camaraderie and a sense of joint forces and identity and common goal that is actually quite unique to Ireland. And certainly it's not as obvious as it is, you know, it isn't as obvious in Canada as it is here. Um, Linda, what, what's the next week for you hold? What's, what is on your agenda for the next week? Because I feel personally, and it's not just because we're doing this podcast, I do feel the conversation has moved on a bit. And certainly the public awareness has moved on. We got a call from Stephen Donnelly's office on Monday. Uh, we had a very thorough conversation with them. And, you know, we're awaiting a call back. But again, you know, there's just this lack of impetus to action. And, you know, when I see then all of this spin and media statements around where investing in women's health and, you know, patting themselves on the back in the budget. And there are women right now, like the, the minister put out a tweet. I actually thought I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw it about how the government is going to deliver on a safe standard of consistent care as part of the national maternity strategy. And I'm just looking at this tweet on my phone and then I'm going into Instagram and seeing all of these messages from people talking about choosing between labouring alone on a ward or labouring in a car park with their husband, about still being denied access for scans, appointments, all of that. And then the minister... Yeah, you don't like the minister's approach either, do you? No. And then you see the minister putting out statements like that without any sort of 
awareness of how tone deaf it sounds and how much we really need leadership on this issue. Absolutely. Linda, I know in past podcasts you've talked about it, but what um, what sort of resources would you recommend for women who are currently, you know, pregnant or, you know, thinking of this stage of their lives? I think one of the big things that people have to grapple with is the issue of vaccination. And that has really come to the fore over the last little while. And um, because there is a serious problem around COVID in unvaccinated pregnant women. And it's not that like it is in certain cases leading to premature deliveries, but it makes you very very sick and I know from talking to people on Women Ascend it is not the same as the anti-vaxxers it is not the same as people getting you know misinformation off social media sites people are worried that it's going to harm their baby people are worried that there's no long-term data and the HSC have done nothing to address those very real very valid concerns and those women don't feel heard and don't feel listened to. And so it's really, really important um, that people get there's really good information um, from the UK organization, Pregnant Than Screwed. There's also Irish-based information from the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Um, and there's information on the HSC website as well. And I really would encourage people, don't get your advice off people on the internet like me. Go to the research, go to the data and and make the decision. But people really need, and I think this is where the restrictions don't align with government policy, Alison, because, you know, when we talk to the HSE, their concern isn't about pregnant women getting COVID. Their concern is about pregnant women getting COVID in a hospital. What resources would you recommend to somebody um, who isn't actually affected, but, you know, has seen the hashtag better maternity care uh, on social media is is starting to get righteously angry. Um, how can they get involved and, and, and what can they do? So I think the best thing to do is to join uh, where better maternity care organizes. So myself and Emma uh, run two different Instagram accounts. So I run Women Ascend and Emma runs In Our Shoes COVID Pregnancy. And that's across Instagram and Facebook. And Women Ascend is on Instagram. And then we're on Twitter as well. I'm at Linda B. Tweeting and Emma is at, at Emma B. B. W. C. Um, and I think that's where we're organizing. It is a very fluid situation because so much is changing. And I think that's, you know, where people come and find us, uh, you know, for our next campaign action. Uh, we've got a new hashtag now after our very successful March for Maternity. And we'll be looking at the compliance charade. Exactly what you said, Dee, about, you know, HSE issuing national guidelines, which are too low a bar in our in our perspective. And then you still have hospitals not abiding by those national guidelines. So we're going to be doing a lot of work. And w- one of the problems uh, with this whole area is that it's very hard to find the information. So, you know, even when we come to compliance, and this is something that allies can do really well and that we're going to be asking people to do, like trawling websites, like they don't update the websites with their restrictions, they don't communicate to people accessing the service. And so that's a tactic that's being used to really keep everybody in the dark and to make this very, very murky and to make it very, very difficult. When we meet with the HSE, they don't have the information either. That's how bad it is. 
Like that's where the communication channels are really falling apart. And so we try and do as much as we can, as informally as we can, to just try and move as quickly as we can and be as receptive as we can to things that are coming at us with the campaign. So that's where people can find us. But Linda, that is the actual people power, the definition of it. It's like it used to be in, you know, on the streets, gramophones or whatever the hell, the big speakers on street corners, but it is social media now. And you guys are all, both of you are doing an incredible, incredible job there. We're talking about online life. And if anybody wants to share anything, it's hashtag better maternity care. And if you'd like to get in touch with us on the podcast as well, maternity, maternity at goloudnow.com. If you'd like to share your stories and we appreciate everybody getting in touch with us because it is, it's really a emotional to share those stories again. And that's almost it for this week. But before we go, we do, as always, want to thank the amazing frontline health workers, the likes of Una, who Amy was so, so happy to see on her second, during her second birth experience. Um, And all these people who've worked so hard throughout this time, we really haven't forgotten that. Exactly. And I mean, those moments do stay with you for years. Like Joan is 10 and I remember the kindness shown to me in the rotunda. And that's why we will be talking to some healthcare professionals and workers, frontline workers across the series of their own experiences and their own pressures they faced in supporting women in their most vulnerable circumstances and at their most challenging times. As Linda put so well earlier, the only people who we should be holding to account here are those in government. So as always, we asked today's guest, Amy, what she would say to our Taoiseach and our health minister if she could. And we'll leave you with her thoughts on that today. (laughs) How can I put it nicely? Now, I think if you're supposed to be our representatives, that the, the book does stop with you. You're representing the people of our country. And the women make up a huge percentage of that. Um, and I would just love a little bit of, 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 of respect um, because we are bringing new life into the world. And that is one of the biggest jobs that, you know, anyone has ever done. It's how you got here. It is how you arrived on this planet. Somebody birthed you. And, uh, and I would just love for... Um, truth and something genuine and a genuine you know movement to make things happen because you know all the sort of you know waxing lyrical and you know I'm here for I'm here for women's health is a big priority next you know next year or on the next campaign oh yeah I'm sure it is because you need to you know I'm sure there's a lot of women out there pretty frustrated at you so yeah I'm sure that's really top of your agenda because you'd want it to be but um, yeah, I just feel like if you're representing us, just, you know, like, just give us the respect that we're due. It's one of the biggest jobs in the entire world is birthing new life into this world. And the very least that you can do when people are flying off to, to on their holidays, when we're all having meals, when we're having Christmas parties, when we're attending music festivals in other countries, the very least you could do is just let us have our support partners there, you know, and and open up the access on that side of things as well and push for it. Because it's very easy to say the book doesn't stop with you. But like, I mean, where, well, where else are we going to turn? Like, you're supposed to be representing us. You're supposed to be fighting for us. You're supposed to be, that's why we vote you in power to do what you're supposed, you know, to do what you're supposed to do to represent the people. And there is, and, and, you know, Fifth, whatever percentage we are of the population, women, 
50% of the population are not being represented. So could you please, can you please do that? Thank you very kindly. Really appreciate it. Thank you for time. Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic is a Go Loud original podcast produced at Go Loud Studios and proudly supported by our partners across Bauer Media Audio Ireland. If you like what you've heard, please make sure to subscribe to the show and tell your friends and family to check it out too. And if today's guest has inspired you to share your story, get in touch with us at maternity at goloudnow.com and check out the Better Maternity Care hashtag on social media to find out how you can get involved with the organisations we've discussed. Birthing a Nation, Pregnancy and the Pandemic is researched and produced by Sue Murphy, who co-hosts with Alison Curtis and Suzanne Kane. Executive produced by D. Reddy with editing and sound design by Owen Brennan.